is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Yes, welcome to the Country Hour. Today we'll look at the Victorian election, what's being promised and how things stand before the polls close on Saturday. And I want your help and commentary on what you think is the biggest issue in your farming community and what you're hearing this election. Text during the show 0467 842 722 and let's dissect what's being promised together. And look, if you need a drink after all of that, we're also going to be talking Prosecco today or should it be called something else as producers go to Canberra and the real need for adjustment, especially during this flooding emergency. Uh, but next on the Country Hour, it's all about the election. 0467 842 722 if you want to be involved. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Victoria heads to the polls on the weekend with regional Victoria set to play a key role in deciding who becomes Premier and how government will be formed. On the Country Hour, we decided to have a look at what's being promised by who and what it means for agriculture in particular, but also rural Victoria. And despite being key to the results, regional Victoria hasn't had a heap in terms of election policies promised to it this campaign. For Victorian Farmers Federation President Emma Germano, there's no way to sugarcoat it. This election campaign has been disappointing. I think there was something like more than 700 uh, different policy announcements and maybe five of them applied to agriculture. So I guess uh, we're certainly not up front and centre at this election. And I guess I was looking for some really... um, you know, big ticket items that looked like reform and looked like a real acknowledgement of the position that regional Victoria is in and has been for a number of years now. And I guess, you know, we haven't seen any major announcements to that effect. Saturday, Victorians will decide how the next state parliament will be formed and who will become Premier of the state. Competing for the job will be Premier Daniel Andrews going for his third term in government and Liberal Party leader Matthew Guy. The Country Hours made multiple requests for Daniel Andrews to come onto the program and make his pitch to regional Victoria and for agriculture. So far, we've had one reply from an individual saying they're sending on a request and no other response to our multiple emails and calls. The Andrews campaign slogan is doing what matters and there are major health promises and a pledge to bring back the SEC, the State Electricity Commission, with a promised over 50,000 jobs in renewable energy. The government says it's spent $3 billion in agriculture over the last eight years and has grown the value of the state's food and fibre industry to $17.5 billion. Across the aisle, Liberal leader Matthew Guy is promising a change, a suite of coalition health pledges, a guaranteed 25% of the Victorian budget infrastructure spend to be spent in regional Victoria and more money for road repairs. Mr Guy joined at the Country Hour earlier in the campaign to make his pitch. Well, I think that not just farmers, but the whole state needs a change of direction, a fresh start. And more the point, we all need to have a government that respects us, no matter where we live in Victoria. And that's why we've got a healthcare plan that is as important to people in Katamatite as it is to people in Turak. We want to make sure that country Victorians get the services and the resources they deserve and to make sure that they're not second-class citizens as they're treated by this government. You can listen back to that interview with Mr Guy in full in the Victorian Country Hour podcast feed or online at ABC Rural. Let's now talk about some of the major policies that are important to rural Victorians and agriculture this election. 
Now, to do that, we've made a number of requests, as I've said, to the Labor Party to talk through their policy platform. We haven't had replies from Daniel Andrews. We've also tried to have Gail Tierney, who is Victoria's Agriculture Minister, on the program without reply. Today, though, we were offered Harriet Shing, who is Victoria's Water Minister and Minister for Regional Development. I asked her why we got her. Minister Tierney has been out and about. She has been uh, doing some serious kilometres and that's where, again, um, she's busy on the ground. I do know that she's got very strong connections uh, to the communities that have been affected, particularly by foot and mouth, by varroa, um, lumpy skin and indeed other challenges as a consequence of the floods. Uh, so Gail has been leading a lot of that work and it's about making sure that we continue uh, to to build on the investments we've made. Does she want to be Agriculture Minister? Um, I don't know. You'll have to ask her. I know that she's certainly got a very keen interest in it, that um, she's hurled herself into this into this portfolio with a great deal of enthusiasm. We've put in multiple requests for the Minister to ask her that exact question, but she hasn't been available. So you're the person that we have to ask it to. So thanks for your reply. No worries. So that is why you'll hear from Harriet Shing in this piece today. On to the policy. If you ask VFF President Emma Germano what the biggest item is for her during this campaign, it's the poor state of Victoria's roads. These roads are literally crumbling around us. Everybody in regional Victoria knows that it is a massive problem and I guess we would have expected to hear a lot more from the government, um, uh, you know, Labor at the moment because, yeah, huge problem um, and that hasn't really been sorted out. There is a coalition promise to increase the amount of money being spent on regional roads to $1 billion a year to be spent on regional roads for a period of 10 years, a $10 billion pledge. Here's Matthew Guy. Under the current government, that has been... Uh, well, it's been barely half that for the, the time they've been in office on an annual basis. Well, that's why I want to put a billion dollars a year, each and every year for 10 years, to fix the roads. And it's not just new roads, it's road maintenance. That's why we must do that. We must do that. You cannot have this circumstance where speed limits are lowered because maintenance just isn't done. That is not a first world country solution. $600 million is roughly what the government's spending at the moment. You're committing a billion dollars per that's year. Right. That's that's only $400 million a year more. It's not enough to fix the problem though, is it? Well, there's a lot of capital works that needs to be done on top of that. And that's why we've committed uh, quite a lot of money on capital works upgrades on those roads as well. Then there's the maintenance. Is that enough to fix the problem? A billion dollars should be, if it's paid. Labor hasn't made any such commitment during the campaign on regional roads. However, Water Minister Harriet Shing defended the government's record. This year, we've invested around $740 million into our roads program. Um, it, it, so it's you're really taking the $600 million there and adding the extra money from the floods that you needed to repair the That's on top of that. Yeah. And when, when we talk about the impact on roads, firstly, three successive La Ninas means that it's really hard to get in and to repair roads um, where, in fact, you don't have cure-off time for the asphalt and they will open up again as soon as you get further wet weather. But just in this maintenance period and this upgrade period, there have been more than 80,000 potholes repaired across the state. And there's also... So you can repair them then in a linear year? You, you can repair them where the weather actually permits um, in terms of a long-term solution. If you don't have dry weather to allow asphalt to cure off, then the first uh, wet weather event that you get will open them up again. And people would have seen this all over the state. But there is that $165 million emergency road repair blitz. And that's about making sure that those towns that have been hit the hardest by flooding do remain connected to vital supplies and those services. So um, we 
we are continuing to do that, um, uh, I suppose, business as usual work against the backdrop of three successive La Ninas. Is it a uh, mistake, though, not to promise, not to have a major promise for rural and regional roads in particular, this election campaign, when they are in such a poor state? Well, we've continued to deliver that record investment into rural and regional roads anyway. So over the course of this... Again, and I've made this point previously to to other ministers in the government, you've spent far more on level crossing removal programs in the in the city areas than you do on repairing regional roads across a greater area? Well, again, when we think about what has been achieved, we've we've rebuilt or resurfaced more than, it's more than 12,000 kilometres of Victorian roads. So that's the largest road maintenance program in the state's history. Those promises have left those wanting more done for regional roads to be able to get either produce to market or just between country towns like Emma Germano from the Victorian Farmers Federation disappointed in what they've heard. We certainly, as an organisation, um, put all of the parties on notice and I, and this is just a major issue for regional Victoria. Uh, I really would have expected a bigger announcement from Labor um, in regards to that infrastructure of roads and rail but haven't heard anything and, and fingers crossed that, you know, we're still a few days out and hopefully they make some big announcements but I guess we're in pre-polling so it's the 11th hour. Um, quite happy for that um, to hear about that $10 billion commitment um, from the Libs and Nats over that 10 years for the regional roads and maintenance and then they've also committed to reinstate the country roads and bridges program so happy with that but again you know we would have really expected more um, when we're hearing so many infrastructure spends in Melbourne and we're not saying that those projects aren't important but it's just this disproportionate spend constantly in metro and and not out in the regions that's a, a major issue for everybody who doesn't live in Melbourne. On to more agriculture specific policies that have been announced this election. It took until the final week of the campaign for Labor to announce a food and fibre platform with the Premier travelling to Millowa in northeast Victoria. Harriet Shing outlines Labor's election pledge. Uh, as people may have seen, we've just recently announced a $31 million fund and that's for the food and beverage industry. Um, so everything from uh, distilleries through to the wine industry, making sure that we've got access uh, for hospitality workers to scholarships, uh, small agribusiness support, making sure we've got community pest and weed management programs uh, and grant schemes. Uh, the Farming Safe and Well program has also received funding uh, through this commitment of $31 million under a re-elected Labor government, as well as making sure that we've got research into pesticide um, alternatives and feasibility studies into a horticulture centre of excellence. So there's a lot there. Um, We've also got additional work going into making sure that our smallest towns have access to grants of between five dollars and $50,000. I'm delighted to announce that a re-elected Labor government will invest $10 million into a tiny towns fund. And this is really a celebration of our smallest towns, which have the most wonderful stories and character and community. And we want to make sure that uh, they get the support and uh, the celebration that they deserve. If you missed that, the breakdown of Labor's funds goes something like this. $2 million for Victorian grown grants to support small agribusinesses to expand whilst promoting locally grown produce, $5 million for a Wine to the World program, working with winemakers to export their produce to more areas, including a new Victorian wine strategy, a $10 million grant fund to support distilleries, establish and 
upgrade their facilities. $3 million for farmers' safety and wellbeing, including $900,000 for the National Centre of Farmer Health. $5 million Pathways to Export program to invest in agricultural trade specialists for Southeast Asia, the Middle East and China and a $10 million small-scale and craft program. The Coalition's agriculture platform focuses on soils and research, particularly in terms of adaptation of farming systems and mitigating against climate change. Here's Nationals leader Peter Walsh. Uh, well, one of the things that was cut through the, the redundancies through over in the Department of Ag over the last few years has been that base research capacity. Uh, there is some very good... Uh, extension groups out there that are farmer-led, uh, like Sustainable Mallee Farming, uh, like Virtual Cropping Group, like Southern Farming Systems, like some of the grazing ones. Uh, but there's not the base research being done that there used to be done. And soils are our most important asset uh, from an agricultural point of view, and particularly with uh, the issues around climate mitigation and carbon storage. There's there's work to be done on long-term research on soils and how we increase the, the amount of organic matter, the amount of carbon in the soil, and, and out of that, increase productivity. So you see storing carbon in a soil as a, as a big response to climate change in Victoria? Well, I see it as part of the mix, um, and and, and it's, a, it's two benefits. One is obviously storing more carbon, more organic matter in the soil, but that leads to increased productivity as well. So it actually helps, increases the amount of food or fibre that we produce. The other package is, is our package of money dollar for dollar for the, for the farmer-led um, research and extension groups. I think they do great work uh, effectively filling a void that used to be the Department of Ag once, but they're doing it very, very well. So assistance for them to continue to do the work and get the... the get the research delivered on the on the ground for farmers. You're listening to the Victorian Country Hour election special, having a look at the policies and what's been promised by major parties this election campaign. And as you've just heard, there's not a lot of policies specific to agriculture in rural and regional industries this campaign. So what was on the wish list? Here's Emma Germano. So I made the comment, it's like we're, we're getting the decorations for the Christmas tree, but no tree itself. And and that's, you know, it's great to have little programs um, announced, but, you know, it's all well and good to say we're going to help artisan producers get their products to export markets and to the, to the world. If they don't have any roads to ship their products down, well, that's a, a major you know, major concern. So it's that it's that mentality that the regional Victoria is part of Victoria that we need to absolutely shift. It seemed to me when we were doing our candidate forums that um, it was like who's the best at defining the problem, not necessarily at uh, who's the best at defining a solution and real tangible steps to actually addressing some of these issues like where we live and work um, out in the regions and that chronic lack of accommodation, you know, the protection of ag land and the renewables coming into the space, that was another real big one. Um, And this, you know, supporting of the regional jobs and and workplaces. And we just haven't seen anything amazing in in any of those spaces, realistically. And then as we get to the end of a campaign where there's been major flooding in areas of Victoria and huge damage to to infrastructure and so forth, uh, does it surprise you that regional issues haven't taken more of a centre stage given, I suppose, the damage to them at a time like this is so front of mind? 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I would have, you know, we were kind of saying that even as the disaster has been unfolding, you know, why are we not talking about agriculture? Why are we not talking about farmers? Why are we not talking about resilience? And there has to be a mentality shift. So, you know, that commitment, um, again, and I hate to sound one-sided in politics because we were very clear about the things that we wanted and we gave everybody plenty of notice. So we're really just dealing with the commitments that we saw and what we've been promised. And it's not about what colour uh, the politicians uh, wear, but you you know, just really would have thought that the regions and agriculture particularly would have been up front and centre in, in such a um, tumultuous time for ag. And we've done the heavy lifting. We have kept the Victorian economy going when, you know, there were all of the lockdowns and we were seeing that um, problem with the economy. You know, regional Victorians have continued to show up and do their bit for the country. So to think that, you know, you're either paying more taxes because, let's be honest, um, rates uh, a tax by any other name and to think that you might be living out in the regions and essentially paying double what your city counterpart um, would be paying, just that, you know, that respect to country Victoria, there's still a large number of people who live out there and work out there and we're not, you know, we're not getting that um, attention from the major parties like we should be. Policy is one part of an election campaign, but there is also the makeup of the parliament and how that affects how a government of the day can get things done. Independents were a major story of the federal election earlier this year, winning a number of seats to create a large crossbench in that parliament. At state level, there has been three regional independents sitting in the last parliament. Two of those will be standing again this election, Ali Kappa in Mildura and Susanna Sheed in Shepparton. Russell North in Morwell has retired. A number of other high-profile campaigns from the northeast to the southwest involving independents are also underway. Mostly, these campaigns are fought on local issues. However, Susanna Sheed in Shepparton said at a recent candidates forum she has advice on where the next government should place their agriculture and water ministers. Look, I just think they should be um, located in the lower house. That's where, you know, the Premier sits, where all the leaders sit, where... Um, ministers largely sit. There are ministers in the upper house, but I think that um, it's so important that our agriculture minister is accountable and is present and is able to be asked questions by people who um, come from regional areas and know about it. And very often in the upper house, there are very few people who might, um, you know, have the capacity to hold a minister accountable um, on a lot of regional issues and particularly farming, food security, water and those sorts of issues. So I see it as important for those really important ministries so all our regions are actually located there. And do you think that would actually change the decisions or, or the debate about agriculture if that was to happen? Yeah, I do. I think there'd be many more questions asked and many more answers given than we see at the moment. Um, if, you, um, if you have a look back on past history, having Lisa Neville in the lower house as our water minister meant that um, at least I could ask her questions, even if not many other people did. But it's the upper house of Victorian politics, the Legislative Council, where minor parties come into their own. After the last election, the Labor Party had 18 seats in the upper house, the Liberal Nationals 11, Greens had one... Darren Hinch's Justice Party 3, the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers 1, Liberal Democrats 2, Animal Justice Party 1, Fiona Patton's Reason Party 1, Sustainable Australia Party 1 and the Transport Matters Party 1 member. It's that large crossbench of smaller parties that could define agricultural policy in Victoria over the next four years. And it's something that has VFF President Emma Germano 
worried. We've been really considering, you know, people have to be so careful with their upper house vote. But we've seen when you end up with a balance of power or just decisions being made in the upper house and that candidates with as little as, you know, or less than 1% of the primary vote can end up being installed into these, you know, positions of prominent power and influence. And you have to be very, very mindful as to where your preferences flow when you're voting in the upper house. And again, you know, I personally think that that's an issue with the Victorian system, because how can someone who gets less than 1% of the primary vote end up in that in that position of influence? Um, and does that mean that the upper house is really representative of the constituents? And that's something that, um, you know, the whole of Victoria really need to think about, um, given the way that some of these decisions have been made. And we saw that turn, I mean, if I can use the word feral, uh, during pandemics and lockdowns and, and that sort of thing, where you realise that actually huge decisions um, on behalf of the state are being made by, you know, potentially three people. Um, and that's when all of the promises get made and, and trade-offs happen and, and all the, you know, deals behind um, closed doors. And we have to be really mindful of that. So what is being promised by minor parties? You're about to hear a run-through of what each minor party is promising in the area of agriculture and rural Victoria on their websites. The Greens have a policy to end intensive animal production and want the implementation of sustainable farming systems essential for maintaining healthy, productive landscapes and addressing the grave threats of land, soil and water degradation and climate change. Their land use policy should prioritise the protection of prime agricultural land from competing economic uses and encroachments, including urban expansion, mining, hydrocarbon extraction and unsustainable biofuel crops. The Greens say methane emissions from livestock is a major source of greenhouse gas contributing to global warming and climate change and needs to be reduced. And they want the development and implementation of an effective framework including financial incentives, pricing mechanisms, extension services and regulation to ensure farmers and land managers are rewarded for the repair and maintenance of ecosystem services. The Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party say they have a simple position, public land is always to remain open and accessible for the public. They want the government to return to the targets of the 2009 Black Summer Bushfires Royal Commission. They are advocating for the return to alpine cattle grazing and want to introduce a bill to ensure a right to farm in the Victorian constitution and give farmers the right to veto mining and extractive activities on their land. It's also policy of the shooters, farmers and fishers to fight what they say is the animal rights agenda in Parliament. The Animal Justice Party wants to stop the use of 1080 poison, end kangaroo harvesting and duck hunting, and the party wants to end all lethal control measures of brumbies in the state and wants to redefine biosecurity to highlight what it calls uh, the risks of intensive farming. The Darren Hinch's Justice Party wants to end live exports and end hunting of kangaroos. I couldn't find Freedom Party policies on agriculture, but the party wants to abolish private fishing licences, with existing commercial licences to remain, including bag limits and fish sizes subject to review. The party is also calling for access to semi-automatic firearms for primary producers with properties of 100 acres and above for the management of pest control. The Freedom Party of Victoria saying it supports hunting as a divine right without reliance to corporations, hunting and sporting shooting to be supported as a right to own firearms. 
The Legalised Cannabis Party wants to encourage farmers to cultivate hemp as a major renewable, sustainable agricultural resource that can feed people and value-added industries will create jobs. Hemp will both complement and reduce the need for the more unsustainable and insufficient crops. The party says growing hemp for seed can double the income at the farm gate as a primary food crop and can be used for making biofuels and bioproducts wants to use hemp to transition to biofuel power stations to lower emissions and create a carbon-neutral cycle and thus reduce greenhouse gases. The One Nation Party wants more dams to be built. The Liberal Democrats say Victorians are being locked out of their own land, saying, I quote, we care for the state forests in our region, whether hunting wild game, keeping feral animal populations down or removing fuel loads. We need free and open access to this land. I couldn't find agricultural policies for Family First, the United Australia Party, the Transport Matters Party or the Reason Party. And there is a myriad of other parties standing this state election. So if there's another wide and varied crossbench, particularly in the Legislative Council in the Upper House in Victoria, after this election, what will the major parties do? Here's Peter Walsh from the Nationals. We will not be trading off agriculture's interests in, in whatever happens if we form government. That's, that's just not on the table. Uh, what we want to see is sensible decisions. We don't want fringe groups dominating politics in Victoria. We're about sensible government helping small business, helping farmers, helping our communities, not pandering to, to, the, to the left or the woke. Harriet Shing from Labor, who does sit in the upper house of Victorian politics, explains her party's position. Well, the Premier's been really clear that there will be no deals uh, in relation to uh, constituting government, um, that he's not put that on the table and he's not prepared to entertain that as far as what a government composition looks like. Again, we're heading into the last couple of days before the election with a very clear objective to be able to continue the work that we've delivered to date and to continue to provide that investment to the entire state. In the upper house, it's a really, um, as a it's a curious situation where in, in this parliament that has come to an end just now, we've seen a, uh, a crossbench of significant size. And in the course of developing legislation, that it does involve negotiations. It does involve discussions, not just with the crossbench, um, but with those who sit on, um, on opposition benches as well. And that's part of the ordinary process of upper house um, uh, deliberations, um, committee stages, uh, inquiries, and indeed voting on legislations. You can imagine a farmer listening to this, though, being concerned about, say, deals being done with the Animal Justice Party, for example, which has a platform that is largely anti-large-scale animal agriculture. Um, I think, again, it comes back to what the Upper House looks like and how we work through negotiations on various pieces of legislation as they come up. We do want to make sure that we are supporting our world-class agriculture. And again, we also need to make sure that we're providing, um, again, opportunities for our primary producers to shine on the exports and giving, getting that market opportunity. So we will work um, with the crossbench as it comes um, to be elected and determined by people on Saturday. With set election dates, this weekend's election will be the last chance Victoria has to decide on its government for the next four years. And many Victorians have already decided 
which way they'll vote. In fact, according to the Victorian Electoral Commission, 1.17 million early votes have already been cast, with only 4.4 million people enrolled to vote. We now have to wait for the results. Plenty of texts and thoughts coming in on the text line, particularly about the election, the state of play, what has or hasn't been promised. You can keep them coming. 0467 842 to send those texts. Right now, though, let's get regional news headlines with Gillian Area today. Good afternoon, Gillian. Good afternoon, Warwick. Police have charged a 59-year-old Warrnambool man with a murder as part of their investigation into the disappearance of Wangu man Christopher Jarvis. Another 70-year-old Wangum man was also arrested and remains in custody. Christopher Jarvis was last seen in 2006, leaving his home he shared with his partner and stepchildren. While the disappearance was initially not treated as suspicious, the investigation changed following information shared by the public. The Warrnambool man will appear later in, Mag- in Warrnambool Magistrates Court today. Interest operators along the Murray River are bracing for huge economic losses over the Christmas holidays as the effects of the major floods continue. Karen Dunstan and her husband own the Karawa Caravan Park, which has been completely submerged since August. She says it's unlikely the caravan park will open before the end of the peak summer period, but even if it does, tourists are looking elsewhere. And Mullamine residents in southern New South Wales say they're prepared to stay and defend their towns from rising waters. Despite an opportunity to evacuate under escort yesterday, most community members have chosen to wait out the floods. Ian Tully from the Rural Fire Service says they've been making preparations for some time and he's staying to help protect the town. And Latrobe Valley Power Company AGL has been fined $50,000 after a fire was sparked by a faulty conveyor carrying coal in 2018. The Latrobe Valley Magistrates Court heard the incident occurred in the Luoyang Mine, surrounded by brown coal, oil and electricity. AGL pleaded guilty to failing to use administrative controls to reduce mining hazard risks and for failing to notify WorkSafe immediately after becoming aware of the incident. And winemakers from King Valley say a ban on using the term Prosecco would be devastating for their industry. A free trade agreement is currently being negotiated between Australia and the EU, which is pushing for a ban on using the word. Fred Pizzini of Pizzini Wines says it doesn't make sense, as Prosecco is a type of grape, not a region. He says they're working to get Australian politicians on their side. And a week on from the dramatic freight train derailment at Inverlee, the rail line has reopened, but part of the Hamilton Highway will remain closed to motorists for some time. The Melbourne-Adelaide rail line was shut down last Monday after the derailment of the freight train, which saw dozens of containers fall onto the track. The Australian Rail Track Corporation says its team of contractors replaced rail and sleepers to restore the line to full service on Monday night. Meanwhile, the Department of Transport says the Hamilton Highway will remain closed to motorists between Inverlee and Mergibollock until mid-next week at the earliest. And that's the latest in news. Thanks very much for that, Gillian. We'll actually have more on that uh, Prosecco story coming up on The Country. You'll hear from Fred Pizzini on the program shortly. Uh, right now, though, let's go to the Weather Bureau and find out what's happening weather-wise around our state. Uh, Michael Efron's the Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, and he can join you now. G'day, Michael. Good afternoon, Mike. Uh, how's it looking around uh, the, the state at the moment? Pretty cloudy outside my window today. Exactly right, and pretty cloudy across uh, most of the state in a uh, west to southwesterly airstream. So we're, we're still seeing some light shower activity over our southern districts, but the good news is that 
not amounting to so much in the gauges, but uh, still obviously a number of uh, flood warnings out, although some of those have recently been uh, finalised, including the Snowy, Werribee, Seven and Castle Creek. There is still a moderate flood warning for the Loddon as well as the Latrobe rivers and, of course, minor to major flood warning current for the Murray and Edward rivers and then uh, also a number of uh, minor flood warnings, including for the Yarra, uh, Kiwa, Barwon, uh, Goulburn and Campaspia, amongst others. So uh, good news there with uh, little rainfall uh, expected today and over the coming days, but uh, still quite a few warnings out. But in terms of temperatures today, we're looking at uh, the high teens for most areas across uh, the Mallee and Northern Country should reach around 21 to 23, so a little bit warmer through there. But on Thursday, we do see a high-pressure system starting to push uh, closer to, to our western border. So I think, again, we'll see some very light shower activity over southern districts, but it should stay dry across the north and slightly warmer as well, looking at temperatures on Thursday in the high teens to low 20s in the south, low to mid-20s across the north, 27 the top of Mildura. And then on Friday, we see that high crossing southern Victoria during the day, but prior to that, still a light shower or two possible through the central district and through Gippsland, but we should see uh, cloud clearing uh, most of the state during the day and especially through uh, western districts and the winds starting to tend light northerly uh, through the, the north and west as well. So uh, a warmer day expected after a cool start. We'll see temperatures in most areas reaching the mid to high 20s across Gippsland, uh, only around 21 or 22 degrees, but uh, certainly very settled on, on Friday with plenty of sunshine heading into the afternoon and light winds as well. On Saturday, we start off dry with some uh, morning fog patches, sunny skies as well, but then cloud does increase throughout the afternoon with some uh, showers developing over western districts and then reaching central Victoria at night, uh, perhaps some thunderstorm activity as well, but not expecting too much rainfall with that typically one to five millimetres over western and central districts. Uh, Northerly winds will freshen ahead of that change and... Uh, we are looking at pretty warm conditions, especially through uh, the northwest temperatures. There in the low to mid-30s, elsewhere looking at the mid to high 20s, so uh, definitely a warm day on Saturday. But into Sunday, we see that change pushing across uh, the rest of eastern Victoria. So we do see a return to that west to southwesterly air stream with a few showers, especially in the south. Uh, southern districts looking at temperatures in the high teens or low 20s, low to mid 20s across uh, northern parts. And then for Monday and Tuesday, I think we'll see that west to south westerly air stream continuing with isolated showers in the south. So uh, temperatures below average for this time of year. We're looking at tops of around 17 to 20 in the south, 20 to 23 across the north. But I guess overall some good news uh, over the next seven days, not expecting... Uh, any significant rainfall. And anything warnings-wise that we need to be aware of at all, Michael? No, just those flood warnings, a number of those still out uh, across the state and and across, uh, I guess, most parts of the state uh, as well. So some of those will continue to be um, 
finalised over the next day or two, but obviously others are still likely to continue, I think, for weeks, if not uh, some months, such as along the Murray. So uh, keep an eye on our website for those warnings. Thanks for the update. Thanks, Warwick. Michael Efron there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, taking you through the full forecast there. On the text line, I did say we'll go through some of your thoughts, particularly on the election. We we had a big wrap of what we're looking at in terms of agriculture and rural Victoria in in uh, and what's on the on the line in terms of the election earlier in the program. Uh, here's some of your thoughts. Hi, was with this election. I'm sick of listening to all the BS. If you uh, put into uh, government, give us less talk, more action, and fix problems, says Harry. Uh, Mick in Redcliffe says just more rhetoric and deflection from the Labor Minister who has no idea about the bush. Our regional road network is just a pothole infested crumbling goat track due to years of neglect while they waste billions on failed urban infrastructure projects. They have let regional Victoria down badly, says Mick at Redcliffe. Chris says, I work. I've heard no promises of benefits to any areas in rural Victoria from any of the parties that will persuade me to vote for them. It is the usual story. Rural Victoria doesn't exist, says Chris. Kim says, I was. I wish that uh, one of them would just fix the bloody potholes that dominate our roads because of the craters that exist in our roads, if you could loosely call them that. In one day alone, Wednesday last week, I went through two rims on two separate potholes, both on the front passenger. And as a result, I now have a cracked windshield to show for it. All of this has to be paid for. So far, I'm out of pocket $400 just to have the tyre repaired twice and wheel aligned and balanced. Thank goodness I have glass coverage on my car insurance as I have to go get that repaired, which won't be done until next week. And until then, I'm technically driving an unroadworthy car thanks to two shires that can't keep their roads maintained. Those thoughts coming in from Chris. And this one says, Hi, was uh, Labor just don't care about the regions. They don't need them to win government. And uh, Jono on the borderline says, We don't need millions. We need billions. <laughs> I think talking about road money there. And Nick from Lake's entrance. I've tried to get through them all. Hi, Warwick. Here in East Gippsland, we've just had uh, in the last week a number of people that uh, appeared to have put their hands up. Two minutes to midnight and all these people appeared. Don't know any of them. What hope do we have? Don't get me started on all the promises and where's the money coming from? There are the thoughts coming in from Nick from Lakes Entrance. And I did want to read this one. Interviewing politicians makes for a very boring country hour. Sorry, was, says someone on the text line. I know, but it is part of our role to inform you about what's being promised this election. And we've tried to do that for you today on the program. Uh, let's talk about other issues now, though, on the country. Uh, the federal court has dismissed an application for $53 million in damages to horse owners caused by uh, their alleged deaths and side effects from the Hendra vaccine. The owners from New South Wales and Queensland claimed that Zoetis Australia did not provide adequate warnings about the potential side effects of the vaccine. Hundreds of millions of doses have been administered to horses across Australia since 2012. More than 1,500 horses experienced adverse effects and some have died. So ATIS have always maintained that the vaccine was safe and effective. Keely Johnson has been in court and explains what has happened. The federal court this morning has dismissed the application for $53 million damage claim um, you know, by the class action of horse owners, basically alleging that 
the deaths and side effects from the Hendra vaccine that they administered to their horses um, was a direct cause of that vaccine. Um, so there were two horse owners that really fronted the class action. They One was based in New South Wales and one was based in Queensland. And they claimed that Zoetis, which is an animal pharmaceuticals company um, that owned the vaccine known as Equivac HEV, they basically uh, claimed that that company did not provide adequate warnings about the potential side effects of the vaccine on their horses. And they believe that their animals suffered these side effects from the vaccine that led to loss and damages. So the lawyers were saying things like if they were expensive racehorses, they've lost that money. Um, the vet bills, they've lost that money. Um, having to replace the horses if they've died, they've lost that money. However, the judge spoke in court today and said there were just too many uncertainties to find the vaccine caused any serious side effects. That was Federal Court Justice Steve Rares that said that. Um, he got, went on to say the expert, expert evidence does not support such a conclusion and I'm not satisfied that the vaccine was not of acceptable quality. Um, I have been speaking to some of the people in the class action. It doesn't sound like it'll be appealed, but we will wait and see. That is Keely Johnson reporting there. You're listening to The Country Air. It's a quarter to one. Now, as the flooding emergency continues to hit areas along the Murray, the need for adjustment is increasing and farmers in those flooded areas are on the lookout for dry paddocks where they can send their stock. Stock and station agent Matt Rowlands says the demand keeps increasing and some farmers really only have a couple of days to move their sheep and cattle. Two or three weeks ago, I suppose, there was a number of producers in a in an area that uh, was starting to feel the pinch with floodwaters coming onto their property and causing quite a lot of dramas. Um, and we were looking, you know, for adjustment for hundreds, if not thousands, um, of, of sheep and some cattle. We've been lucky enough we've been able to get some sheep and cattle out of the road, not necessarily away on adjustment, but holding them and feeding them fodder at the moment. Um, otherwise, those that, uh, that could have you know, quickly on-sold the stock um, that they did not particularly need to keep on or they were the first lot of stock to go off the place. But we're just seeing quite a lot of pressure um, come on our Moolamine community at this stage um, and through along the, the Edwards River system there. And we look to have quite a lot of water hit them now, presently, and in the coming sort of week. And we're also quite worried about road access and the logistics of being physically cut off and not being able to... Um, move stock out of their area as the water continues to come up. The emergency services or those overseeing the flood emergency around Moolamina are certainly saying that there is no road access into the township. So does that add another level of complexity if you are trying to get livestock carriers in there to move stock to other properties that might be able to help with adjustment? Oh, definitely, and this is probably, you know, a good reason for contacting you, Kelly, and just trying to reach out to people that if they do have any, um, you know, any paddocks that are hay paddocks that have failed or, you know, you know, there's fellow paddocks that have got a lot of growth on them or it might be somewhere where someone can just house, you know, if it's three or 400 or it's, you know, the, what capacity people can handle, um, we'd love for them to get in touch with us because, yeah, at the moment roads are still parkable obviously treating them with a lot of caution and everything, but the worry is in, you know, two to three days' time, we don't really know whether that's going to be um, 
adequate to even transport stock out. So we'd like to move as quickly as we can and, yeah, if we could find some adjustment or um, holding facilities that anyone would be able to help us out with, we'd really, really appreciate it. On the weekend, there was a significant hailstorm that went through that patch that runs sort of from Oyen through to Sea Lake and probably up near Swan Hill as well. Are you... Uh, are crops that have been flattened like that potentially suitable for um, adjusting stock on? Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, yeah, they'd probably be pending inspection depending on what the damage is and, and whatnot. I suppose some of the trouble we have just speaking with a few of those guys that have been affected in the last couple of days or over last weekend is that we probably can't put stock on those paddocks until the insurance assessors have been over them. Um, it's not completely entire paddocks that have been you know, affected over four, five, six hundred acre paddocks. There might be strips through them. So, you know, some of that will be salvaged as well. So we're just probably potentially, yeah, looking for people that have got room on failed hay paddocks or whether it's, you know, dry land fallow paddocks or some some fenced area with salt bush or what it might be, just any sort of access to get some stock out in the next few days and just to house them for what might be a week or two until we can find some more permanent adjustment. In drought times, feedlotting livestock happens uh, just because it's easier to hand feed stock. Is that even something that needs to be considered if it is hard to find adjustment properties? That's already sort of happening in a few different places at the moment. It's just probably, yeah, the logistics of it and, and everything at the moment that some of those stock have gone to containment feeding. But if we can find some more open, better feed paddocks, we'd... Um, we'd like to sort of find them because it seems as though this is going to be more of a long-term problem than a a short-term fix. Is it easier to keep the stock in New South Wales from a livestock management perspective or are you happy for them to cross into Victoria or or another state if that's where the opportunities are? Yeah, definitely. Look, we're open to all considerations. Obviously, there's different things we've got to factor in and everything, but we can well and truly work um, with anyone that, that thinks, even thinks they may have, some space somewhere, um, yeah, we can definitely arrange what needs to be done. And, yeah, if it's New South Wales or South Australia, we're just crying out for a bit of urgent help. That's Elders Stock and Station agent Matt Rowlands uh, speaking there to Kelly Hollingworth. You're listening to the Country Hour. Well, we might talk politics again now. Winemakers from Victoria's King Valley were in Canberra yesterday to brief parliamentarians and meet the Federal Agriculture Minister uh, and talk about the importance of the Prosecco grape variety. The industry is fighting the European Union over the right to use the name Prosecco, with producers potentially being forced to take the word off their labels. Italy is trying to claim exclusive rights over the name, similar to how champagne winemakers in the French region have a monopoly on the name under the rules of appellation. Uh, Pizzini Wines was one of the producers represented at the meetings, and Annie Brown spoke to owner and winemaker Fred Pizzini about the aims of the meetings. It really is a meeting to, to try and secure the name, the use of the name Prosecco internationally, not just in Australia, but internationally. So um, it's, it's going to be some interesting meetings. Managed to, um, through with the help of Helen Haynes, to meet uh, the Mr. Murray, Murray Watts, which was, uh, which was amazing, if you think about it. Um, apart from that, then they'll be meeting with a lot of other, other people, independents, Greens, um, Liberals, Labor, wouldn't matter to try and get that message across when they go into the free trade agreements that they don't trade 
the name Prosecco away for some other products. So we have been talking about this issue for a few years now. Um, You said it goes back to even before COVID, which feels like a a very long time ago when we say that. But why now these these meetings up in Canberra? Well, Annie, we've met a couple of times now. It's not just that this is not the first meeting that's happened in Canberra. There was a delegation went through pre-COVID to meet again with with the politicians. So it's really it's been an ongoing conversation with the not only with government but obviously with the, with the Italian consortiums that, that are trying to stop the use of the name Prosecco internationally. So it, it just hasn't happened. I think this is probably coming to a to a pinnacle to a final conversation because of the free trade arrangements that are being negotiated as we speak. And I think. They're trying to finalise that over the last six months, so um, it's pretty important to, yeah, to get to get into the into the into that space with the politicians to hopefully they'll support the argument of the free use of an actual grape variety. So, can you explain what it would mean for the wine industry and perhaps even your bus- your own business as well if the name Prosecco was no longer allowed to be used here in Australia? I think in the short term it'd be it'd be very uh, I think it'd be economically damaging without a doubt. Probably over a period of time there's a chance that we might work our way through that. But I, I think I think we've got to be careful. We're not allowed we're not allowed to give any ground because it's it's the use of the name of a great variety. I think Annie, and that's important. As far as you know, yeah, how much cost? Good good question. I think it'd be pretty devastating to be honest. What would it be called if it was banned? Would it have another name, or would you call it Australian Prosecco? Or well, there's 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 the alternative. The Italians are trying to trying to make us use the name Glera, and Glera is a, is another clone of um, of Prosecco or, or Australian Prosecco. They're the two things that they've been trying for us to um, to support. But you know, with our with Wine Australia and, and, and with the producers, we weren't prepared to accept either one of them. I guess what's in a name, though, Fred, um, would, the product wouldn't really change, but I guess not having the word Prosecco on it, would it really stop people from, from buying it and consuming Prosecco? Probably could. I think, you know, the name Prosecco is just a beautiful just a beautiful marketing term, I suppose. And, and you know, the, the, everyone, everyone knows it as Prosecco. I know that in our case we do a little bit of export into Japan, into 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 the EU, into London, and we can't use we cannot use the name Prosecco. It has to be called Glera. Um, we can't even put Australian Prosecco on there at this current time. So there's already there's already um, some you know difficulties in getting into 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 markets overseas. That is Alfred Pizzini, winemaker from the King Valley, speaking to Annie Brown about meetings held in Canberra uh, from King Valley winemakers uh, asking for more support to keep the name Prosecco in Australia. Plenty of markets to get through today. Let's start in Hamilton with the Sheep and Lamb Market Report there. Here's Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. There was a big jump in numbers to 21,929 new seasons lambs at Hamilton this week. The quality was excellent over always, with the painter lambs being young lambs unable to handle the recent weather conditions. 
The market was softer for lambs up to 26 kilos, being 6 to 8 cheaper in places. However, lightweight lambs lifted by $10 per head. Heavier lambs remained firm and the top suckers made to $253. New season's light lambs 12 to 16, made from 57 to 105. Light trade lambs 18 to 22, they made from 150 to 173 to average between 720 and 800 cents. Medium trade weights 22 to 26, 172 to 226 and they averaged between 750 and 820. Heavy lambs over 26 kilos remained firm and all quality driven. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Let's go to Graham Pimer at Horsham. Good afternoon, everyone. Lamb supply was similar to last week at 5,975, and along with the quality, the medium and heavy trade lambs sold from 180 to 220. Heavier weights sold from 227 to 235. The old lamb sold to 238. Restockers paid from 99 to 152. Lighter lots from 76 to 95. They paid from 97 to 113 for some big runs of young Merino Weathers and from 75 to 120 for Merino Ewes. Sheep numbers were up at 3,100, covering all weights and grades. Merino ewes reached 160, crossbred ewes sold to 157. The light trade weight lamb sold from 143 to 181, the average 780 to 815. The medium trade weight sold from 180 to 199, they've averaged 800 to 815. Export weight sold from 227 to 235. Medium weight sheep sold from 83 to 129, they've averaged 450 to 520. Heavy hoggets made to 206, rams to $80. And Grant Pimer at Horsham from LA. Thanks, Graham. Let's go to the cattle in Tim Delaney's at Warrnambool. Good afternoon. Cattle numbers decreased to 380 at Warrnambool, 322 less. Prices for the cows were most from 10 to 20 cents easy, with a few sales of the well-presented cows close to unchanged. Vealers to the trade made from 460 to 490 cents. Restockers paid most from 450 to 480 cents. Feeders purchased yearling steers from 440 to 460 cents. Prices paid to 470. Yearling heifers to feeders sold from 370 to 430 cents as the prices is paid to 425 cents a kilogram. Grown heifers sold from 340 to 386 cents as the feed is paid to 406 cents. Grown steers were from 350 to 410 cents. A few manufacturing steer sales with cover sold from 330 to 366 cents. Heavy beef cows made from 330 to 370 cents. Younger cows made from 380 to 388 cents. Best of the dairy cows sold from 298 to 340 cents a kilogram. And heavy bulls sold to 380 cents. This has been Tim Delaney reported to MLA Warnable. And lucky last at Lean Gather, it's Brendan Fletcher. G'day Warwick, there were 390 fewer at 690 with most of the usual buyers present but not all operating in a cheaper market. Quality was limited with cows representing over half of the sale. Trade cattle eased 20 to 30 cents, bullocks lost 10 to 20, manufacturing steers slipped mostly 40 to 50 cents. Most cows gave back 20 to 50, with processors loading cows for an estimated 4.30 to 6.58 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls fell 35 cents. Grown steers and bullocks sold from 4.32 to 4.52. Heavy Friesian steers 3.26 to 3.46. The crossbreds 3.40 to 4.46. Most light and medium weight cows 1.60 to 2.50. Heavy weights 2.15 to 3.40. Cows to restockers and speculators 100 to 3.35. And heavy bulls 3.10 to 3.66. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Brendan. Just before we get going, a couple of texts. Shane on the text line says, G'day, Walls, I reported a massive pothole between Napoleons and Ballarat to Regional Roads Victoria yesterday 
and it was fixed four hours later on my way home. It's not all doom and gloom, as reported by everyone on your text line. From Shane, Shane, at the exact same time you sent that, one of our reporters on the other side of Ballarat on the Hamilton Highway sent us a report about how bad the potholes were on the road. So you can take make of that what you will. Uh, Peter says, just a reminder, though, these need to be paid for. If you're asking for tax cuts, uh, don't ask for your roads to be fixed as well. Thank you for all of your commentary and thoughts today on the program. We'll be back on the radio at the same time tomorrow.